Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, today we're continuing our series, His Story, Lessons from the Old Testament, how God interacts with the human family throughout uh, the Old Testament. And I've entitled our message today, When Hopelessness Wins. There's a lot of music written, a lot of Christian music written in the last, you know, well, going back hundreds and hundreds of years, going back to uh, throughout history, both in Christianity and obviously in Judaism before that in the Old Testament. But Christian music is, is a huge industry as well because we like to have certain sounds and we like to have Christian words put to them. And so there's been a lot done over the last many centuries and certainly the last 40 years in contemporary music before that. A lot of great music like Handel's Messiah, a lot of very classic music. In contrast to this, in 2011, comedian Steve Martin performed a song on The Late Show with David Letterman and that he called the entire atheist hymnal on one page of paper. We've got all this music, the atheists don't. He said, there's one page of paper, the atheist hymnal, he called it, atheists don't have no songs. <clears throat> he said, Christians have their hymns and pages, Hava Nagila's for the Jews, Baptists have the rock of ages, atheists just sing the blues. Romantics play Claire de Lune, born again, sing he is risen, but no one ever wrote a tune for godless existentialism. For atheists, there's no good news. They'll never sing a song of faith. In their songs, they have one rule, the he is always lowercase. Well, that was supposed to be a little funnier than you responded, but nonetheless, we'll work on that next week. A world without God is not what you write songs about. A world without God is not a very hopeful place. It's one thing to have a God you disagree with. I'm not happy about God sometimes. I'm not happy about God's interactions with me sometimes. I'm not happy about things that have happened in my life or your life sometimes. It's one thing to have a God you disagree with who might be too strict or he might be too loose for some of you. He might be too close, might be too far. But the idea of God makes life make sense. Creation and existence make sense if you are a theist. Good and evil make sense if you are a theist, if you believe in God. Without God, the world does. And for those of you who've known the Lord your whole life, you just have no experience with this. Without God, the world becomes ruthlessly pointless. Ruthlessly pointless. Listen to this. In recent years, a new I wish I'd never been born movement has been emerging in different parts of the world. This is a real thing. Just this past February 2020, so a couple years ago, a 27-year-old Indian man named Raphael Samuel announced he was suing his parents for birthing him. He said, it was not our decision to be born. Human existence is totally pointless. The philosophy began in 2006 with South African philosopher David Benatar in his book, Better Never to Have Been, The Harm of Coming into Existence. He asserts, life is a procession of frustrations and irritations. 
Many lonely people remain single, while those who marry fight and divorce. People want to be, look, and feel younger, yet they age relentlessly. He quotes Ecclesiastes. He quotes the Bible as well as Greek uh, tread. Uh, Tragedian Sophocles, never to have been born is best, but if we must see the light, the next best is quickly returning whence we came. In other words, life is absolutely pointless. Benatar writes that having children is intrinsically cruel and irresponsible. I actually dated a girl who kind of believed that. And she didn't want me to be a pastor either. My mom didn't like her. She loved Dee Dee. Having children is intrinsically cruel and irresponsible, he writes. People who decide not to procreate are expressing compassion. While good people go to great lengths to spare their children from suffering, few of them seem to notice that the one and only guaranteed way to prevent all the suffering of their children is not to bring those children into existence in the first place. There are people who think this way. There are people who write books about this. But this feeling is not for atheists and philosophy majors only. Sometimes things happen in our lives as Christ followers, and if you're here, you're probably a Christ follower, you're open to it. And sometimes things happen in our lives that make God's promise seem extremely distant. Sometimes our all-knowing and all-powerful God seems to have run out of knowledge and power. Sometimes we land in situations where hopelessness actually seems to make sense and we're sort of tempted to just say, just chuck it all. And there are a lot of people doing that with the Christian faith these days. And today we have a Bible story where that's exactly how you'd expect the figure in the story to react. To just say, chuck it all. The promises of God now seem irrelevant and distant. They're not going to happen to me. Yet in the background, God is still at work, and he has a long-term plan that was invisible to this person in the short term. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 37. If you've been around Christianity much of your life, it's a story that you certainly will know. And we're going to read a fairly good passage here, fairly long So if you don't have a Bible, there should be one right in front of you, and it's on page 28. It'll be a little easier to follow the sermon if you kind of see the story. So Genesis chapter 37 on page 28 in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, and this is about Joseph. Now he's kind of a new figure. We're introducing Joseph today. He's the son of Jacob, who we've been talking about, one of his 12 sons. Joseph's dream. Verse 1, now Jacob, his dad, lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. And then we begin with Joseph because he becomes prominent in the clan. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, some great girls' names if you're having a child, his father's wives, and Joseph brought back a bad report about his brothers to their father. So he's a little tattletale. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic. Something that simply means like floor length long, not necessarily very colored. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream. 
And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. Behold, your sheaves gathered round and bowed down to his sheaf, or to my sheaf. That was a very endearing story. Then his brothers said to him, are you actually going to reign over us, or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. In other words, Jacob recognized this actually could be God talking to Joseph and Joseph just not handling it really well. Then his brothers sent to pasture their father's flocks in Shechem. Israel, which means Jacob, it's his new name, so he's going to go by either one now moving forward. Israel was his name, and also it became the name of the nation. Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come and I will send you to them. And he said, I will go. Then he said to them, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring back word to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. A man found him and behold, he was wandering in the field. The man said, what are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they're pasturing the flock. The man said, they've moved from here for I heard them say, let's go to Dothan, which I believe means two wells. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan or two wells. When they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then come, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits and we'll say a wild beast devoured him. Let us see what would become of his dreams then. But Reuben heard this and he's the eldest, I believe, and rescued him out of their hands and said, let's not take his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood, throw him into the pit that is in the wilderness, but don't lay hands on him. And he was planning on rescuing him out of their hands to restore him to his father. He was planning on doing that later. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped him of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it, so a dry well. They sat down to have a meal. That's what you do after you throw your brother in a pit. You have lunch, celebrate. They raised their eyes and looked. Behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead, their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. So traitors. Judah, another brother, steps in. Now, not Reuben, but Judah, the one who is in the line of Christ, by the way. He said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he's our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Then some Midian traders passed by. They pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Story goes on a little bit. They put blood on the robe, took it back to dad, told him he was killed by a beast, and dad was heartbroken. And they all faked that they were two. Just a couple of points about the story. We're just going to follow the story and then a primary point at the end. First, a young Joseph is given a divine glimpse into a grand future. God had plans for Joseph. The context of the story 
after Genesis 11, so we're going to kind of tell you what Genesis is about. If you haven't been a part of the series, after Genesis 11, the people of the earth were scattered across the world. Happened after what was called the Tower of Babel. So the people of the earth are scattered across the world. God's plan to reach them at that point was to raise up a nation to be what the Old Testament prophets call a light to the Gentiles. That was going to be Israel. They would be a light to the Gentiles. They would obey God. They had this covenant with God. And if they obeyed God, he would bless them and the world would recognize that blessing and come to know the true God. That's sort of the Old Testament in a nutshell, Genesis 12 and after. So in Genesis 12 to Genesis 50, so the rest of the book of Genesis, what you've got is Abraham, the first leader of this clan, the patriarch, becomes eventually a large clan that is becoming a nation. Exodus opens with this clan having become a nation a couple hundred years later. So Abraham is becoming a nation. God made promises to Abraham that he would make him a blessing to the world, that he would put his descendants on this piece of land and he would bless them and eventually a savior would come from them. So God made promises to Abraham that are then passed on to Isaac, his son, and to Jacob, his son, who is now called Israel, and then he's got 12 sons that will become the 12 tribes. Until now, this succession that we see has actually also been the line of Christ. Abraham is a progenitor of Jesus, so is Isaac, Jacob. Joseph is not. So this is kind of interesting. We have a break here from the line of Christ. Until now, the succession of leaders has also been the line of Christ, and until now, the emphasis is on the key clan leader that would be in the line of Christ. After Jacob, the story now expands to the children of Israel, And with Joseph, you have his story for the rest of Genesis, and he is not in the line of Christ. It doesn't center on the line of Christ, except for chapter 38, which is a weird and bizarre story that I preach on at Christmas sometimes. Joseph becomes the focus because God has incredible plans for Joseph as it relates to saving the rest of his clan. But Joseph was an immature 17-year-old when he found out about these plans. And I just want to point out, I mean, I'm not saying this is okay, but his dad has like four wives, and we're going to talk about that dysfunction in a moment. But he's got four wives, and some of his brothers are probably well into their 30s. So I just want to picture, let's say you've got this massive family that you're born into, and you've got brothers that are maybe 20 years older than you, 15 years older than you, and you have these dreams and tell them they're all going to bow down and worship you doesn't go over real well in any family. So Jacob, his dad, who's now called Israel, has 12 sons and one daughter. Those 12 sons are ultimately, you know, sort of the 12 tribes, if you will. Unfortunately, he got these 12 sons and daughter through four different women, two wives and two servants of those wives. Sometimes they're called his wives, sometimes not. Sort of legally, their children would be his children. It's a little messed up. So Jacob's house, this is reality now, and by that I mean reality TV, his household is like the Jerry Springer show. You read the Old Testament, you want to honor all these people and act like they're all normal. This was absolute dysfunction. And often the writer of Scripture doesn't really point that out, but he does point out the results. This home was like the Jerry Springer show. It was reality TV on steroids. He had a favorite wife. We all know it. Her name was Rachel. His favorite wife, Rachel, struggled to have children. Leah, his other wife at first, had children first, meaning that normal clan leadership would go through one of her sons, like Reuben. 
but that wasn't to happen. Jacob is born late into this, or I should say Joseph and Benjamin, I believe. Those are the two sons of Rachel who couldn't have children for a long time, then had them sort of at the end. And, and so Joseph is born late. He's the firstborn of Rachel, his favorite wife, and he demonstrates that he's the favorite. Dad demonstrates that, and it created massive competition in the clan because, as you know, some of us were raised with this, the kids know the score. I mean, there's, this, there's some incredibly good parenting sermons in here. I don't think it's the primary purpose of Genesis, but there is some, illustratively, some incredibly good parenting advice here. You have to treat your kids the same. This clan was messed up because the kids knew the score. Joseph had been given a special robe reserved for royalty or persons of distinction. It was dad's way of saying, you're going to be the clan leader. He worked with his brothers. Early in the chapter, it says he went out, worked with his brothers, and he brought back a bad report to dad. So little Prince Joseph was kind of a privileged tattletale at 17. So, you know, if you're an older brother, you might say he was kind of asking for it, but nobody asks for what happened here. God has this grand future planned for little Prince Joseph. God has plans. Yeah, he's immature and annoying, but God wants him to know his future. And so, actually, the text doesn't clearly say these dreams are from God, nor does it say that he should tell anyone about these dreams. But it's clear from what happened that these dreams were from God. And even his father recognized they could be. So he gets these two visions, or dreams, as he's sleeping, one at a time, which he reports to his brothers. First, there's the sheaves of grain dream. Now, when they used to harvest grain, obviously they didn't have the combine, and they didn't separate the heads of grain from the stalks at first. They would go through and with a, what do you call it, a scythe or something like that. You, you know, you'd kind of cut them at the bottom, and you would bind up the sheaves that had the heads on them yet, then you would take them to a threshing floor and beat them and get all the grain off of them. And I don't know what they did with the straw, but nonetheless, these sheaves of grain would be bound in a field. Even in, I think, even in North America, we have, you know, sort of pictures of when they used to harvest that way, right? Okay, those kind of, yeah, Thanksgiving pictures of what happened on the farm. So you had these sheaves of grain, so they would cut them and they would stack them, but he said, hey guys, I had this dream where I'm a sheaf of grain and you're a sheaf of grain and my sheaf, well, I'm not, but my, my sheaf of grain stands up and yours all come and bow down to it. And the brothers didn't really appreciate the analogy. It was obviously him saying, I'm gonna have priority in the clan. And if that wasn't enough, he said, I also had sort of an astronomy dream where the sun and the moon and the stars all bowed down to me. And they didn't appreciate that. The sun there was dad, the moon was mom, and the stars were the brothers. And the brothers, after hearing the interpretation of that dream, were furious. Now, interestingly, when dad heard that dream, he didn't appreciate it, and he basically told him, you know, you got to knock this stuff off. But he also recognized that it might be God's voice, and he kind of pondered it. The scriptures say he thought about it. But that animosity in the clan set the stage for a pretty serious crime. Second point, jealous brothers seemingly thwart God's promises of a grand future. All right, so we're just going through the story now. We'll get to the main point in a few minutes. This is where God's plans for Jacob seem to go off, or for Joseph, I'm sorry, seem to go off track. The brothers have had enough of Prince Joseph and his dreams. 
Joseph goes on a little field trip to Shechem. He's doing it for his father because it seems like he's the one who's been entrusted with kind of bringing back reports about the flocks, the herds, etc. And it seems not just reports about the flocks and herds, but reports about you know, his 11 brothers, which were not good reports. So he goes on this field trip, and the flocks had been moved to a place called Dothan, which means, I believe, two wells. He arrived to basically, as a result of all the problems he has sown with his brothers, he arrives to a premeditated murder scene, basically, ready to unfold. Now, wells in the Middle East were actually you know, they're dug into, you know, sandstone and pretty soft rock. And so as they would dig them down, they would, they would mortar them and basically brick and, and mortar the wells. And I think you see them in movies. I know I have. But this is new to me. I just read this this week. Over time, some of those wells underground were quite massive. So I don't know if it was because they would start out with something that's about six by six or four by four and climb down on a rope or a ladder and then they would cave or if the reality is as they would run dry, you would keep digging deeper and wider for better seepage. But historians say that some of these wells could be you know, four or five, six feet at top, but 100 feet wide at the bottom. And they might be mortared like that, which is interesting from an engineering standpoint, a little scary. You don't know what you're walking over over there. 100 feet wide at the bottom. And when they dried up, and you'll see this later in the history of Israel, at times when they were under attack and they didn't have an army enough to defend themselves, what did they do? They would hide in wells, these kinds of places, mortared underground caverns that are dried up wells. Sometimes they actually became prisons. You just drop some guys down there and you leave them there. Maybe drop some food for them once in a while. So the boys are planning to kill Joseph, the little prince in his special robe, and throw him into a dry well. Reuben, the eldest, who had been involved in some pretty nasty stuff, some pretty violent stuff Dad hadn't approved of just a short time before this, convinced them, we're not going to kill our brother, we're not going to shed blood on our brother, but let's throw him in the well. And Reuben's plan all along was, you know, these guys are hotheads right now, I get it, Joseph is annoying, but we don't need to go to these lengths, we don't need to kill him, so I'm going to sort of appease my brothers, we're going to get him thrown in a pit, later on in the evening, I'll come get him out, I'll bring him back to dad safely. That's his plan. So the deed was done. Joseph comes I'm not sure if he's walking or riding on a camel or riding on a donkey. He comes in his special little robe, and they jumped him. And they're probably beating him up. And they tore his robe off of him, and they threw him into this dry well. And then they sat down for lunch. They saw a caravan going towards Egypt. Traders, they're called Midianites, Ishmaelites, if they're Ishmaelites, they're sort of distant cousins, if you will. And they thought, maybe we have another way to solve this problem. Judah, like Reuben, did not want murder on his hands, but he did suggest, let's sell him. So they pulled him out of the pit, and he might be thinking he's getting his freedom. And then he sees the transaction take place 20 shekels of silver, and he's sold. Reuben comes back later, probably that night, to rescue him. It's too late. He's gone. They dipped his robe in blood. They brought it back to dad. Made it look like a wild beast, cougar, bear. Had torn him up. 
dad was just a mess. He had lost his favorite son. And the Bible says sort of all the family sort of wept with him. The brothers basically faked sympathy for a murder they had just committed, or I should say selling their brother into slavery. Joseph is now bound or caged or both. He travels for days on the major trade route that went through Israel down to Egypt. He's 17 years old. He's 17. He's one of the youngest in the family. And he's going to be a slave in a foreign country. Now, in my opinion, there's no coming back from that. In my opinion, if you're in that situation, I don't care what you believe about God, you go from faith to hopelessness very quickly. If I'm Joseph, those dreams I had are now all in question. Which brings us to what we really want to talk about. Joseph has little remaining hope in the promises of God. Now, I want to park here. I want to park here for a couple of primary reasons, which I think are obvious to you. Number one, this stuff happens to us. Not, you know, that we're wearing our special robe and our siblings beat us up, throw us in a pit and sell us. But God makes promises to us, and there are times in life where it seems like they're all at risk, and it seems like not believing God makes the most sense. It seems like hopelessness is the right position. This happens to us, and it's one of the primary reasons people walk away from faith. God will disappoint you. He's disappointed me, and if he hasn't disappointed you yet, you just haven't lived long enough. God is going to disappoint you. There's almost no way around it. And I think the, our theological perspective in those moments is, is incredibly important to the preservation of our faith. The second thing is, and this is kind of obvious, but we overlook it because Genesis tells the rest of the story in the next few chapters. And we know, I'm going to wreck the ending, it works out pretty well. But I want you to know this. Joseph at that point didn't know that. I suspect he didn't believe it. I suspect he was sort of on the rocks with God. We know the end of the story because it's the next 13 chapters. God is faithful, and Joseph does not only get delivered, but he sort of saves the rest of his clan. I mean, God was in this to some degree. He didn't cause the sin, but he's in it, and he used it. But Joseph wouldn't have known that just like you and I don't know the future, how God is going to bail us out of some terrible, hopeless situation that we get ourselves in. So here is Joseph's reality. He's part of this small nation, or clan, called the children of Israel now. It's still a growing clan. Promises to his great-granddaddy Abraham, his grandpa Isaac, and his dad Jacob, who's now called Israel, affirm God's grand idea about what his people are going to be. And he's going to be part of that plan. He's going to be a part of a nation. He's going to have this blessing to the world, and he's going to occupy this land. And it seems like he's the favorite to be the leader of the clan. And he's had these dreams that affirm that. That somehow God is, is, is going to sort of give him this elevated role in the clan. Now he's not in the line of Christ, which is very interesting because we've got 13 or 14 chapters that deviate from the line of Christ here. But he is the most important of the 12, which remains a mystery at this point as to why. 
He's been the favorite son, which is just a terrible thing in a family. He's been the favorite son of the third tribal leader to hear these promises from God, and he's got this fancy robe to prove it. And now all of that has crashed. His dreams are, everyone's going to be bowing down to me. Nobody's bowing down to him now, and especially not his brother's. He probably spent hours in that dry well wondering what was going to happen. Are they just messing with me? What are they really going to do? And he's retrieved because he can't see anything down there, only to be bound and perhaps caged by foreigners. And he sees money exchanged for his life. And he's headed away from the land of promise. And interestingly, in people's theology about gods back then, people often thought gods were only local or regional. And that probably influenced Israel at times and its ancestors. It would seem like he's even taken away from the presence of his God as he's deported from the land of promise. And he's sold twice by his brothers to these traders, by the traders, to a person named Potiphar in Egypt. And I guarantee you that Joseph's first thoughts are not, not, well, this is just a trial from God. You know, all things work out together for good. I have no doubt I had those dreams. They were real. This is going to work out. God is with me. He wasn't thinking that. He's 17 years old, and he's now a slave. We tend to use our circumstances as a litmus test of God's love and care, don't we? Things are going well. We feel like God is close to us. Things aren't going well. We feel like God is distant. It's normal. It's not accurate, but it's normal. Joseph felt what you would feel, and Joseph felt what I would feel. He felt hopeless, and there's no resolution in that chapter. There is eventual resolution if you just read a few chapters, but there's no resolution there. He's a 17-year-old young man or boy sold into slavery, and hopelessness makes sense. So what happens when we get in that position in our lives? I want to close with that. Those magical words I want to close for some of you. Sorry. Hopelessness wins when we only look at our present circumstances and not the future. And this happens to all of us. One of the biblical concepts that's quite popular even in the culture is this everything happens for a reason. And there's biblical, you know, there's Bible verse on that, Romans 8, 28. You know, we know that all things work out for the good of those who love God, for those who have been called according to his purposes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it is easy to even be watching sports, which I watch a lot of, and to hear athletes quoting these kinds of things. You know, well, I tore my MCL and I'm out for the season. Everything happens for a reason. You know, I'm in an MMA fight and I just got myself all beat up. Everything happens for a reason. You know, you hear this everywhere from everybody. But when people say that, it usually assumes that we're going to be able to understand it eventually, doesn't it? Like everything happens for a reason and a few years from now, I'll probably understand what that reason is. 
But sometimes people don't get that. Sometimes we never do understand why, and that's when hopelessness sets in. The popular Pursuit of Wonder video considers what everyone, whether everything happens for a reason. This is a fictional piece. A young man contends he has led a good life and a decent life, but in an instant, this sort of good guy is in an earthquake that collapses his home and crushes him, and he's in a hospital with serious injuries, and he's at a loss to understand how everything happens for a reason. So he says, I wonder, as I lie here dying in this seemingly reasonless way, what this means. If I've never done anything deserving of such a tragedy, how then could there be any good reason for this event occurring to me? He admits his prior beliefs were wrong, perhaps. That every time I said everything happens for a reason, every time I heard it and believed it, every time I seemingly found a reason for why something happened to me, I meant that it happened for a good reason, a just reason. I meant that there was some considerate order to the universe and everything in my story was placed there to allow me to become the winner of it in the end. But how foolish was I to think this? that I was somehow special, somehow important, that somehow the universe agreed and gave me immunity from the fact that no one wins this thing. In spite of life's chaos and tragedies, the narrator still chooses to believe everything in this life happens for a reason. However, he says, one day the reasons will dry up. And when this moment comes, there will be no ink left to write a reason for running out of ink. And so until then, I say I will lie here in this hospital bed, dying, writing, revolting against the hopelessness, creating every last reason I can. Sometimes we hang on to that everything happens for a reason, and we don't know if we're ever going to understand and the only way to have hope in those situations is to believe in the future resolution of life's difficulties. That's pretty hard without God. That's pretty hard if this life is all there is. Sometimes there isn't resolution for people. There are people today across the world in multiple countries who are innocent civilians in war conflicts and there are people going to die in the next week because of that or are dying right now. And I guarantee you, if they ask this question, it feels hopeless because there are no reasons that will make sense to them. There are reasons, but none that work on a personal level. Sometimes this life doesn't give us that. But that's where the next point is incredibly important for us. Hopelessness wins when we look only at our earthly life and not our heavenly destination. There are times in our lives, even as Christians, where we want to believe everything happens for a reason, and God has said that. But if this life is all there is, and we never get resolution, then that's just ridiculous. But if there is a God in heaven, and he's overseeing everything, and there are things that can be done in our lives, especially suffering, which makes us better, which conforms us to the image of Christ, and there is a heaven, and how what happens in heaven is based on this life and how we handle difficulty, then all of a sudden some of it can make sense again. When there's no resolution in this life, nothing makes sense to the atheist. Some of it can make sense to the theist, especially if things turn around for you and God answers prayer. But if he doesn't, heaven helps it make sense because this life is not all there is. This world is broken. There's a great story about Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a Russian writer who spent years in Siberia in prison. 
At one point, he'd become completely discouraged, decided to give up and die. His plan was to stop working out in the field, lean on his shovel, and wait for the guards to come and beat him to death. That's a little bit morbid. However, when he stopped, another prisoner reached over with his shovel and drew a cross at his feet in the dirt. And then he raced it before a guard could see it. Solzhenitsyn later said his entire being was energized by that little reminder of the hope and courage we have in Christ because there's a future. He found the strength to continue because a fellow believer cared enough to remind him of our hope. The fact that there is a heaven, the fact that there is an afterlife, that this is not all there is, makes everything happens for a reason make more sense. We just might not understand some of the reasons on this side of eternity. If there's no afterlife, he should have initiated his own death and just gotten it over with. Let the soldiers kill him. Sometimes our lives only make sense in light of eternity. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. He's talking there about being conformed to the image of Christ, that God uses suffering to make us like him. That is both a temporal issue, but it's also an eternal issue. Some things only make sense in light of eternity. And we have to look at life that way. And finally, hopelessness wins when we have unbiblical expectations we believe are biblical and God disappoints. Now this is a very real cultural issue among Christians. You know, there's verses in the Bible that we think are promises from God. I'll give you one of them. Train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old he will not depart from it. Kind of sounds like a promise from God. It's not. It's a general principle. Proverbs aren't promises from God. Proverbs are kind of like Kind of like Aesop's fables, they're wise sayings that generally come true, but it's not a guarantee, it's not a promise. But how many Christian parents look at that and say, I did all the right things, and my kid isn't where I want them to be, so God isn't telling the truth. God's let me down. Well, God didn't let you down. It's complex. There are all kinds of preachers today running around telling people that God wants them wealthy and healthy, and I really wish God wanted me wealthy and healthy. I've been fighting a back injury for a year, which is a lot better the last couple weeks, by the way, for anyone who's prayed for me. Thank you. But, you know, we get hurt, we get injured, things happen. God doesn't promise health and wealth, but there are people in my profession who look at the Old Testament and say, in the nation of Israel, God promised to prosper them. And if God prospers a nation, that means he's going to prosper individuals. That is true. But I have bad news for you. You are not an Old Testament Jew. I might be the most Jewish thing in this room. I'm 132nd Jew. I don't know who married who, but I'm 132nd. It doesn't guarantee me anything. But there are preachers all over the place that say it does because they are horrible at hermeneutics, and that is the science of interpretation. You know what's promised in the New Testament for following God? Martyrdom. Don't you love those promises from Jesus? Hang on to that one. Don't worry, life will get better. You won't be here. That's what Jesus promised to the early church. Yet how can we read the Bible and interpret it so badly and rip it out of context and hold God to things he never said in the first place that he was going to do? That's why the Apostle Paul encouraged Timothy to rightly divide the word of truth. I can make this say whatever I want it to. I could start a cult. You could too. I might be better at it than you because I've got more, you know, more experience with it. This is God's word. 
but it's only God's word when we understand what the Spirit intended when he wrote it. When we misuse it and say it says things it doesn't say, it is not God's word, it is your word. We need to be good with this word of God. We need to treat it with care and respect it and make sure we are following his intentions when we interpret it. But because we often don't, we hold God accountable for things he hasn't even promised. And then when he doesn't deliver, we're angry with God. We're disappointed with God. And that is so common today, especially in younger generations, that where God's a little too harsh for them, a little too strict for them. Don't hold God accountable for things he hasn't promised. When we do, we end up disappointed and hopeless. Believe things. Believe that many things will make sense in this life in the future. Believe that. They often will. All things do work for good to those who love God. In Joseph's life, not long after this, eventually God came through and Joseph understood it. It took some time, it took some years, but God came through and all things did work out for a reason. And believe that if we don't find that in this life, they will make sense in heaven. Are you hopeless today? Are you hopeful today? It's so important we have the right perspective as we go through life about God and about life and about life in the future so that we can keep our hope and our faith in him. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story of Joseph, a familiar story. And it's easy for us to just read past this chapter and know that, wow, this really works out wonderfully. Joseph is elevated in the nation of Egypt and he ends up saving his whole family when they're in a famine in Israel and they come down and he rescues them. But at the end of chapter 37, that is far from anyone's thoughts. He's a 17-year-old young man who's a little full of himself who just had all of his dreams shattered. And there doesn't look like there is any hope around the corner. God, that's where we find ourselves at times. And I pray that when we do, we would take the long look. That we would understand that sometimes life gives us curveballs that we just can't hit. But it doesn't mean you're not real, it doesn't mean you're not present, and it doesn't mean things won't turn around in the future for the better. And if we never see that in this life, that some of it will make some sense in eternity. Thank you for that hope. Help us to believe that, to live that way, and to hang on in difficult times. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.